Unbreakable, Acts 12, 20 through 24. If you remember, if you were here last week or you caught the, the podcast or, or YouTube, um, last week we talked about how Herod had, uh, King Herod had uh, executed James and how he had imprisoned Peter. And we, we saw the balance in the Christian life. Herod was, was the praise of the people, of the Jewish people, uh, that he was ruling over because uh, he was persecuting these Christian leaders. And uh, we saw how God had delivered Peter through this angel and just miraculously just opening gates and just doing this wonderful thing. And we saw the balance in the Christian life, that contrast of, of death and life, light and darkness, blessings and having prayers that are at times unanswered, okay? And so on the heels of what Herod did uh, to the early church leaders at the beginning of chapter 12, we pick up in verse 20. It says this, Now he, that's speaking of Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Amen. We'll stop there. My hope is that this message today speaks to any one of you that have contemplated, thought about, or are in the middle of giving up on something. Where you feel defeated. Where you feel as though you are on this slippery slope and you are not advancing upward or forward. You feel as though you are retreating. You feel weak. This message I hope to speak to your heart deeply, to know that what God has given to us as a follower of Him, as a child of God, is an unbreakable spirit. We're going to talk about how that relates to the church and also to the Christian, okay? And we're going to use this passage of Herod, how he was uh, speaking death threats to the Christian leaders, how he himself died, and how the church continued to advance. Now, in my office, if you've ever been there, I have this little canvas frame that sits just off to the left on my desk. And this is what it says. I picked this up, at, I think, at Marshall's, okay? Don't pray for life to be easy, but pray for yourself to be strong. As soon as I saw it, I knew I wanted to buy it, okay? It doesn't have really a verse attached to it, but there's so much truth to this. that It represents, in a sense, how I want to live my life. It represents how I want to to lead my family or a church, how I want to be a child living on this green earth before God. As I think about what stands before me, what presents itself on a day-by-day basis, whatever challenges they may be, I want to be the person that is not asking God, make my life easier, but I want to be the person that says, God, make me strong enough to overcome and conquer all that is presented to me. And I I look at this every time I sit down at my desk. It just sits to the left of my monitor. Now, I was thinking about, you know, uh, there are are ways to do really well on a test, aren't there? Number one, take a really easy test. (laughs) Or number two, be well prepared no matter how hard the test is. Now, I can ace every single one of Jacob's tests without even studying. But it doesn't say much. He's in kindergarten, right? It doesn't say much at all, okay? And so to do well on a test, I can do it if I take easy ones, but it's about the preparation. 
the strength of my preparation to meet the test that I'm faced with. And if my preparation is there, if the strength is there, if I understand that, I can do well on that. When adversity presents itself to me, I can overcome that if I know that the strength and the power that resides within me, that gives me strength and meaning, is strong enough to overcome. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that infomercial flex tape. Anyone ever seen that flex tape? And you know what that is? It's still like this really, it's marketed as this durable, strong tape. It's black and it's strong enough to patch leaky roofs, to fix a leaky pipe. And one of the demonstrations on this was they sawed a boat in half, right? And they taped it with this flex tape and it's on the water with this motor. He's yelling, yeah, it's even strong enough to hold this boat together, right? And no water's coming in. And what they're saying is they've put this tape through rigorous testing and it's come out strong enough. Right? And so they put it through the gamut of stuff and it has proven itself strong. Okay? And so if you think about it, like let's say I manufacture glass and I market it as this is the, a virtually unbreakable glass. But it doesn't mean much if all I've tested it against is like cotton balls and pinto beans. You know what I mean? It, it, it depends. What, what your reference is. And so the unbreakable nature of something, it means it's tested against the hardest of situations. It's put against the grind. It's come out strong enough. And this message title, Unbreakable, I want to talk about that in relation to us as the church, capital C, not just the local church being strong, but I'm talking about the universal church of Christ. To know that God's church, the body of Christ, that that is strong and that the Christian, the follower of God, is strong as well. That there is a spirit that is unbreakable. And if you think about what's the Christian made of, right? Because if you think about flex tape, they're trying to say the substance of this tape is strong enough to endure all of this. What's the substance of a Christian? You can talk about the skeletal features, the bones and all that good stuff. But when you spiritually break it down and you peel the Christian layer by layer, what should be at the essence of a child of God? It's Christ. And you put that to the test. Now there is a, a, a verse in Scripture that's kind of uh, the beginning, the, the introduction to a very famous passage. We call this passage the Great Commission in Matthew 28. There is a very understated verse of that passage in Matthew 28. Now we normally say, you know, Matthew 28 verse 19 and 20, you know, go into all the nations and make disciples, you know, pre preaching and teaching, and I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, Jesus says. But if you go one verse before verse 19, that the Great Commission is premised, it is founded upon this principle, this truth, that for us as a Christian, the power for us to go into the nations and make disciples and to know that Christ is with us, that has meaning because verse 18, it says that all authority has been given to me. Jesus has assembled his disciples and before he commissions them to go out in his name, he says, I have all authority. All authority in heaven and on this green earth is mine. So go therefore, make disciples of the nations, teach them everything that I told you, baptize them. I'm going to be with you. You can trust in my power. And that's an understanding we must have when we think about our Christian lives. When we approach the mission that's in front of us, do we do it in the strength that is in our own, the wisdom that is ours? Because those things are breakable. 
Those things can, can fade and crack. Those things don't stand up to the challenge at times. But when we rely upon the essence of our faith, and knowing that Christ has been put to the test, that He endured every temptation, and that He came out as a conqueror, to know that we have this high priest that understands us, that we can come to Him with boldness and ask for help in our time of need. That is what makes the Christian unbreakable, not because he or she is strong enough, not because he or she knows everything, not because we can quote the Bible verbatim, but it's because we have a high priest, we have a spirit that indwells us, that teaches us, gives us the words to say, gives us a strength that is stronger than our own. This is the essence of our unbreakableness. And so I ask this question to you. You know, thinking about Herod, you know, like this guy, he's not a Christian king. He's this client king of Rome, right, for the province of Judea. And he's ruling over these Jews. And he has the favor of the Jews. I mean, he's doing things like persecuting these undesirable leaders like James and Peter. And everybody's happy that he's doing that. And history says that King Herod Agrippa I, which is this king that we're reading about, was a very liked king amongst the people of Judea. Right? He was a very liked king. He wasn't a Christian king. And when you see him kind of keel over here and die, you, you ask yourself, I mean, that's weird. I mean, it's not like he was professing to be this good king or, or, a, or a believer of God. Why would God judge King Herod like this? Because he didn't give him the glory. He's not even a Christian. Right? And I think that's a, a reasonable question to ask at times. At least I was asking it when I, when I read this passage. You know, he's not a Christian king. Why is he held to this standard of giving glory to God? And was forced to peruse a little bit of scripture. And one of the first scriptures that came to mind was a, was a verse in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, and I highlighted all, not just Christian, not just Christian believing men and women, but all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so this verse tells us that God has a judgment when people suppress the truth. So when people hide it, dwarf it, minimize it, skew it, that God has the presence, the ability, and the right to execute judgment okay? on all ungodliness, that, on all men that suppress the truth. Okay? And the, the passage goes on. In verse 19 it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. So this is kind of talking about a conscience, right? That everybody has this idea of God. And someone has said famously before that everyone has a God-shaped hole, right? That only He can fill. That there is somehow a yearning for this higher thing somewhere, even though I don't name Him. That you can go to the remotest jungles of the world, the highest peaks where no one else lives but a handful of people, and yet there is some form of religion there. There is some idea that there is a greater, grander picture or story, right? And so that there is this evident thing that is within every person. God has made known, right? For God made it evident to them. And it goes on in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, right? Not vague, clearly being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. 
Now this is talking about what theologians say is general revelation. General revelation is when God in his almighty nature just infuses in, in ways, in the nature, in just the conscience of a man that he exists. That there is a general awareness that God exists, right? And that's what this passage is teaching. That I look out into the ecosystem and somehow I should be able to glean a perfection there, an order, an organizer. I can look at, at the, the rising of a sun and see majesty. I can look at its setting and see a form of beauty that was created. That I look out into nature and somehow it forces me to ask the question, there is something bigger than me. It's evident. It's revealed to me. Whether I know the Bible and have read it, whether I profess Jesus or not, all men, it is evident too. And so Herod is included in that. And so Herod was killed here that the judgment of God came down because he didn't give glory to God. And that seems to me, from an, just kind of like a superficial vantage point, that's irrational. That doesn't make any sense. But to Herod, even, that there was this understanding that there was this higher power, that there was a greater scheme of things, so to speak, and that he wasn't the top of the food chain. That he is not just sitting on this rostrum full of all of this power and glory and he can say whatever he wishes and it just comes to be. That even his life is subordinate to something higher. And Herod didn't recognize that. And there was this glory that he took for himself, a pride in himself. And that is what God judged. And that judgment is reserved for all, not just professing Christians. Romans 13 teaches us to be subject to governing authorities, right? Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So Paul is teaching on this premise, make sure you, you humble yourselves before governing authorities, that pay your taxes, do your, your, your civic duty, what, what you need to do. That God has established these governments. That God has established these authorities. That's why. Secular or religious. There is a sovereignty of God there. But there's an, a, a, a kind of a flip side to this. That all authority, it only exists because it's from God. And that everything that exists was established by Him. And what you can also get from this is that all authorities can cease to exist by God's hand. That as much as he establishes, he can take it away. And I see that God was, was right to do that to Herod. And I think we need to understand that first and foremost as we approach this passage in Acts 12. This death of Herod eaten by worms. And so I get to my first point. My first major point is this. Fighting against God never ends well. I mean, is that a personal testimony for any of you? Right? That you can say that, like, I fought against God's will. I knew He wanted me to do something, and I went a completely other way, and it just didn't end well. Right? I mean, if you've lived and followed God long enough, this is like this like personal testimony. This is just a statement of fact in our, in our lives. Because we realize that when we, when we march against what God desires for us, it doesn't bode well. Herod, this Herod Agrippa, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. And if you remember Herod the Great, he was the one that massacred all of the infants when Jesus was born. Right? So he's the grandson of that, that Herod. Right? 
And he is also called Agrippa the Great. And so he was just a glorious, glorious king. As I mentioned, he had the authority, the adulation of all the people. Verse 21 and tw- uh, 22, right? Doesn't it speak of that? That he was delivering this address and everyone is just shouting, Oh, the voice of a God and not a man. They're just elevating him. Right? Maybe out of fear. There was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And so it's not a, like a Christian historical account of this. It's just a regular uh, historian uh, talking about Herod Agrippa. Right? And this is what he says in the Antiquities. He put on a garment made wholly of silver and of contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, though not for the good that he was a god. It goes on. A severe pain also arose in his belly. It began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, He departed this life. And it gives this idea uh, that there was this splendor about him. And it gives more detail into how he died. It's not just like he was just zapped on the spot, keeled over, and worms ate him up in that moment, right? There was this pain from within, and he suffered through that. And he ultimately died because of this pride, this glory that he hoarded for himself, this power that he assumed and not giving glory to something bigger than himself. But Herod isn't alone, is he? Aren't there many people that have fought against God to say, hey, and try to stick it to him, elevate themselves above him? Isn't history full of people like, look at the biblical accounts. Go to the book uh, of Exodus, right? Pharaoh and his armies just standing strong in defiance against God and his people. Finally letting them go and then feeling a sense of remorse and chasing them down into the wilderness. If you think of the Israelites themselves when they got into the wilderness, they themselves rebelled against God's leadership, grumbling. There was a rebellion there even amongst His people. You look at one of the prophets, like Jonah, the famous one, right? That God said, go and preach the word to Nineveh. He says, oh, I don't want mercy to go over those people. And he goes the different way and he boards a ship. Look at Judas Iscariot selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Not just biblical accounts. I mean, a lot of people in history have fought against God. Frederick Nietzsche, right? The, the one who famously coined that God is dead. Even John Lennon, the Beatle. In the mid-60s, there was an article published in England, and it talked about how he believed that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And to quote him, this is what he said. He said, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Now, for all of the people that I mentioned, it didn't end well for those folks, right? Pharaoh and his army are in the bottom of the Red Sea. The Israelites died in the wilderness, didn't cross over into the land of promise. Jonah, he was thrown overboard and swallowed by a big fish. 
Judas, he hung himself out of remorse and shame. Nietzsche, at the age of 44, he went insane, lost his mind, was under the care of family members for the rest of his life, for the last eight years after which he died. Insane. Lenin, he was shot dead in New York. Now, I'm not saying that this is the fate. That's not the point. That if you rebel against God, your ultimate fate will be you're at the bottom of the sea. You'll be, uh, you'll be excluded from a land of promise. You will go insane or you will be shot dead by a person. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. The point of what I'm trying to say is this. God will prevail. That's the point. That authorities rise and fall. Right? Rock and roll bands, they rise in popularity and fall. Celebrity fades. Riches die. But God remains. And of all of the people throughout history, from the beginning, inception of time, from Adam and Eve, right until where we're living right now, there have been countless millions of people that have said, to hell with you, God. And try to stick it to Him. Elevate themselves. Have, a, have an idea, a philosophy that goes against the fabric of God's identity and glory. And in the end, those people have all faded. The manner in which they did, it's not consistent. And I'm not saying that it will be that for us in that same manner. But what I'm saying is this, that if we have a track record or are doing something that is trying to fight against God, that will not be a successful endeavor. That's what I'm saying. Because in the end, God will still stand. He'll still be on that hill, high and mighty, receiving all glory. No matter what I say, I can write countless books, try to publish and market them to the masses, and yet God will still have His way. That no book that I write will outweigh Scripture. That there is no word that I can say that can be stronger and more authoritative than the words of Christ. That He will remain. That's what I'm trying to say. That fighting against God never, ever ends well. How do we apply that to our lives? How have I fought against God? How have you fought against God? What are the, the, the words and the impressions, the missions and the callings that He has given us that we have said no to? What are the promptings that we have shunned and put in a corner? That when I fight God's will, never ends well. That's first. Second is this. The church will always prevail. I love verse 24, right? Because Herod, he's, he's preaching threats to the Christian leaders and he's having the praise of all the people and he's sitting on this judgment seat and everybody's in horror and in awe of him and they're saying, you are a God, you're a God, you're a God. It wasn't uncommon. This also happened in the church, right? When they spoke of that like to Paul and to Christian leaders. And they're calling him a God and... He's receiving all of that, not reflecting or deflecting any of the glory to something else. And then he dies. And so the one who was breathing threats against the church, the one who was killing church leaders, the one who was arresting them and showing them as a spectacle to the popular, to the public, this guy dies in all of his glory, in his silver shining garment. He is dead, right? This man in all of his glory. And the very institution, the group, the church, that he was trying to, to corral, to bring back, to cut down. That church, in verse 24, it says this. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Doesn't that speak to the power 
of God, His Word, His church, and the Christian? That there will be people high and mighty that speak against the Word of God that will cut the Christian down. That Christians will be martyred, massacred, killed, beheaded, burned, crucified, imprisoned, spoken badly of. But in the end, when it comes to the power of God's word in the church and in the Christian, it will prevail. There is a strength there. And so as I said in the beginning, to those of us that have contemplated giving up in whatever arena that we're thinking about, that you feel it's an uphill battle, I'm sliding backwards, I'm not gaining any ground here, I'm losing it. And we feel as though we want to give up on this. What I want us to know that we need to elevate our theology of the church and of the Christian life. We need to understand that the power that God has given to me is a conquering power, a conquering spirit. That's the power of the church and the Christian. That's what I want to say to us, to me, to you. To know that God has given me a spirit that prevails, that is unbreakable, that has been tested against the gamut of hardships and still come out, thriving. Last week, I, I read this passage to you. Sorry, before I say this. In Matthew 16, Jesus had this conversation with His disciples in the city of Caesarea. He gathered them and He goes, Hey, everyone's talking about me. Who do they say that I am? Right? And they're saying, Oh, some are saying John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, or one of the prophets. He kind of shakes it off and he goes to them again. Well, who do you say that I am? I know people are saying this about me. But what do you, th what do you think? And out of the group of disciples, Peter stands up and he goes, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is, he is impressed, right? And he, and he singles him out and he goes, Peter blessed. People didn't reveal this to you. God did. And this confession of yours is the very confession that I'm going to build my church on, he says. Hell, its power and gates, it will not prevail against this church of mine. This is what Jesus is saying about his church as it is being established. That because the church is founded on the confession of Christ, of who He is as the Son of the living God, that no matter what hell can do, no matter what hell can say, no matter what person hell raises up to fight against the church, it will not prevail against it, He says. This is the power of the church. This is the strength of the church. And last week I, I read to you a verse in Colossians, right? That by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This is what I read for you last week. The verse after this, this is talking about the glorious nature of Christ, right? He preceded all things and everything is going to culminate in Him too. And in the very next verse it says this, he is also the head of the body, the church. And so this, this all-present, powerful, eternal being, that He is head of a body called the church. That He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. 
And it says in 1 Corinthians, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And how I'm connecting this is this. I spoke in the beginning, all authority has been given to Jesus. That's why we have a commission in front of us. And the verse that I read last week in Colossians, talking about He culminates all things. He preceded and He will be at the end of all things. But He is head of the church and we are members of the church. And so if we have this indestructible, unbreakable head that represents the body that we are a part of, that is our character. That describes us. Now, if you are a follower of God, a lover of Christ, and the Spirit dwells within you, that is the Spirit that indwells us, this powerful Spirit. And so when I walk around defeated, that doesn't represent the power that indwells me. That doesn't represent the body that I'm a part of, the head that I serve, Christ who is my Lord. There is a song that we sang right before I got up, right? And one of the long lines in that song, it is well, it says, the wind and the waves still remember his name. I was so touched by that. I was so touched by that. Because there are times where I feel like the disciples in the boat, right? They're on the Sea of Galilee, and the winds and the waves started to whirl around them, and it was pounding the boat, and they were afraid that they were going to die. Jesus is asleep in the boat. And in horror and in bitterness, they come and they shake him. Jesus, wake up! Don't you care about us? We're going to die here. And he rebukes them. He just gets up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And they still. And then he goes to the moment of little faith, speaking to them as though they could have endured. They did have the faith to go through this, to maybe even still the storm themselves. And in that song, he that the wind and the waves still remember His name. It just touched me in a way that, you know what, there are times where I feel like that disciple, where I'm complaining to God, feeling as though that I can't overcome this. And I feel like the waves are too high, the wind is too strong, the rain is pounding too hard. And I feel like I, I can't get to another day. And I can't get through this. And I, and I resign myself, and I, and I check in my spirit, my confidence, and I, and I'm no longer facing the hurdle in front of me as I, as I once did. And in that moment, as I sang that line, it just rushed into me. It's like, wait a minute. The wind and the rain, the waves, it still knows the power of Jesus' name. That I can still stand in that name now and rebuke it in the name of Jesus, and it will obey. That I have a power inside of me that can go through any storm that I face because I follow a Christ that has overcome it. That was a powerful message to me. And I speak that to you as well. That are you struggling in the middle of a stormy sea? Do you feel as though that this is the end of it? Whatever that might be. And I want to say, if Jesus is in the boat, it's going to be okay. That if He's in your life, if you follow Him, if you are a child of God, there is a power inside of you that can overcome this. Get through it. There is a spirit that is unbreakable, powerful, and it's Christ. I close. Praise team, you guys come back. I close with two statements. The first is this. The strongest and most enduring group that you can be a part of 
is the church. And I don't mean small c, local church. Okay? I mean capital C, big church. The church of Christ. His body. That the most enduring organization, if I can call it that, the most enduring group that I can be a part of is the church. Now, that needs to be the highest. That needs to be an elevation of theology of the church, right? Just to know that the church is strong and will endure. That when all is said and done and heaven has been inaugurated, we're on the other side of eternity, the church will still remain. Everything else will fade. Governments will go. Rulers will die. Celebrity will fade. Riches will be gone. But the church will remain. Why? God established it. It's His. It's the body of Christ. So I want to ask you to elevate what you think about the church to know that it is the most enduring group that I can say I'm a part of in my life because it will carry over into eternity. No matter what ruler speaks against it, no matter what comes up and tries to oppose it, the church will remain. That's first. And the second is this. The mission of the church and the spirit of the Christian will prevail. I want to speak that into your spirit today. I want you to know that the church will go on, yeah, no matter what I do, whether I say I'm a part of it or not, the church is going to go on, right? But I want to speak to you right now and say that your spirit will prevail if Christ dwells there. Have confidence. Know that you have an unbreakable spirit. Amen?